robot is a machine that can carry out instructions without requiring active help from some connected intelligence. The word robot was coined by a Czech writer named Karol Čapek in his 1920 play R.U.R., though he later claimed that his brother was the one who actually came up with the term to be used in the play. In this context, robot was derived from the Slavic word robata, which meant forced laborer. But the concept of a pseudo-life form that is artificial and which works independent of any active instruction isn't new. Global history is riddled with golems and Hephaestus's mechanical servants and statues and puppets and bronze figures coming to life. You can also see less anthropomorphized machines in the Greeks' water clocks and steam-operated bird figurines. So even way back then, this was not a new idea. Later devices, also technically robots, were developed in the 19th century, with the dawn of radio waves and the harnessing of electricity, which led to remote-controlled machines and simple, early, programmable devices. An android is a more specific type of robot designed to look like a human. Falling into this category would be the metallic Terminator robots of the Terminator movies, and even figures like Data from Star Trek, who was a robot designed to look like a human. The word android comes to us from the Greek language, combining two words that together mean something like having the form or likeness of a man. And although the word android is typically used to describe robots that look like any type of human, if you wanted to get pedantic about it, you could call androids designed to look like women gynoids. A cyborg is often portrayed similarly to an android in literature and film, but the two terms actually refer to two different things. While an android is a robot that is designed to look and act human, a cyborg is an organic creature blended with artificial body parts. And in fact, the word cyborg is a portmanteau of cybernetic organism, a term that was coined in 1960 by the scientists Manfred Kleins and Nathan S. Klein. In some cases, then, the main distinction between an android and a cyborg is not immediately clear. Arnold Schwarzenegger's character in the Terminator movies is said to be a cyborg, meaning he is actually part biological entity with real flesh and blood, but he's also part artificial organism, all the metal bits that make up his skeleton and eyes and so on. If his skin was synthetic and his blood just for show, fake blood rather than biological blood, then Arnold would have been an android. The term cyborg requires that some part of the creature be organic. And notably, a cyborg need not be human-shaped, while an android is defined in part by its human shape. You could have a cyborg whale, part machine, part blubbery sea mammal, or you could have just a 
ball of skin and capillaries and muscle that can move around using a gravity generator machine that's contained deep inside of those organic parts that are on the surface. I'm not sure why you'd want to have something like that, but the point is that a cyborg is part organic, part artificial, and it can be any shape, while an android is all artificial but looks like a human. And a robot is even more broad in that it can be absolutely anything, from an automated builder arm in a car factory, to little fake yapping dog toys that are sold to children, to satellites that are launched into space that keep a stable orbit automatically without requiring any human intervention. The distinction between these types of entities may seem a little nitpicky, but I would argue that understanding the difference is increasingly vital. After all, it's nearly impossible to read or watch or listen to the news without learning about some new crazy tech-enabled travesty that's happening somewhere in the world, be it attack drones or hackers hacking or algorithms crashing the market or smartphones making everyone frail and sick and depressed and poor. One journalistic meme that is particularly nonsensical and one that you will almost certainly notice after I mention it, if you haven't already noticed instances of it before, is publishing a piece on artificial intelligence and then slapping the image of some death robot into the article. Most often, Terminator robots, but sometimes Cylons or Decepticons or Gort from the classic film The Day the Earth Stood Still. And having that image there can distort our perception of what artificial intelligence actually is. What I want to talk about today is how our understanding of what technologies do, what their capabilities might be, but in some cases, what technologies just are and are not, and the difference between things like artificial intelligence and a death robot, how those distinctions can color the information that we receive about these things and can influence our perception of what these things represent for our present and our future and how misunderstandings about these things can perpetuate harmful and incorrect stereotypes that can cause us to misunderstand elements of other related things as well, including great big important things like war and other types of military conflict. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article that I'd like to use as a jumping off point today comes from Gizmodo, and it's entitled Google Employees Resign in Protest Against Pentagon Contract. And this piece, which was written in May of 2018, is a follow-up to another piece that was written back in March of 2018, which was entitled, Google is Helping the Pentagon Build AI for Drones. According to that original piece, Google started working with the Pentagon, the Defense Department of the United States, on a quick-paced effort called Project Maven back in April of 2017. This project, which is also more formally and less catchily monikered the Algorithmic Warfare Cross-Functional Team, was developed to help the U.S. military more accurately distinguish what their drones are looking at. Whether what is shown in drone footage is a person or a tree or a fire hydrant or a car, for instance. 
The project is meant to help the Pentagon process all the footage its drones have captured. And though there are not any specific numbers or data quantities available on this, that's got to be a massive stockpile, seeing as how they collect this type of data daily in numerous places around the world. And this effort is meant to help them basically make use of all this information that they have already collected and continue to collect, but which is not currently in a terribly useful, filterable, metadata-linked format. It is not terribly efficient, if you're trying to assess threats from a distance, to have to pour over every second of countless days' worth of grainy footage if you're assigning humans to do it. That's a whole lot of manpower wasted on a tedious job, and it's also a potential risk as those people watching those drone videos each have their own difficult-to-identify-and-quantify-and-rectify biases and prejudices, which could affect the work that they do. Not to mention the fact that humans are just not great at work that requires long-term concentration and focus on incredibly boring things. The idea here, then, is to use machine learning, which is a field of computer science, often lumped in with other fields of computer science, into the broad category of artificial intelligence. And I'll get more into the specifics of that in a moment. So they're trying to use machine learning to basically teach software to tell the difference between people and fire hydrants, and to do it reliably enough that you can start sorting these deluges of video data into something more manageable. Something that then actual humans can jump in on and know that they will be looking at something relevant, rather than just watching endless streams of nothing happening, potentially missing the one moment in which something actually does happen, because they're dozing off from boredom. Now that's a gross simplification of the concept. Project Maven has been tasked with being able to detect and identify around 38 categories of object that might show up on screen. They're not just focused on humans and fire hydrants. But this is a good baseline to work from. Google is partnering with the military arm of the United States government to build software that will process drone shot video footage efficiently and effectively allowing them to make better use of that footage. Part of what's notable about this story is that most people at Google had no idea this type of work was being done. Someone, presumably someone working on Maven or adjacent to it, mentioned the project in an internal mailing list, and that stirred up rancor amongst many Google employees who didn't believe the technologies they worked with and helped develop should be used for any military purpose. Eric Schmidt, who was the executive chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, until January of 2018, mentioned this concern in a talk that he gave at the Center for a New American Security Artificial Intelligence and Global Security Summit at the end of 2017, saying, quote, There's a general concern in the tech community of somehow the military-industrial complex using their stuff to kill people incorrectly, end quote. Google's official stance on the matter has been that, yes, they are working with the U.S. military, but their work is not combat-related. They're just helping the government process some video. Nothing to worry about. So if that's the case, if it's just video, stop worrying, geez, then why are these engineers, some of the people building these tools and evolving these technologies, 
not just concerned about this application, but as mentioned in that more recent article, actually quitting because of these revelations. There are a couple of reasons for this. And the first is more about Google and their structure than anything more broad. Some of the Googlers who decided to resign have said that they did so because they just didn't believe in the company anymore. This was the last straw, but it's representative of something bigger that's been happening within the company for a while now. Google once represented ideals that they believed in and which they were willing to sacrifice for. But as the years have progressed, the company has become more of a typical massive tech company playing ball wherever it will earn them a buck, and steam rolling right over their discarded don't be evil slogan that charmed so many people in their early days after incorporation because moving past that phrase has helped them increase shareholder value. Employees and their concerns have become less important to management, some of these disgruntled employees have claimed. In 2015, Google announced plans to ban all sexually explicit content from their blogging platform, Blogger, but then backtracked on the rollout of that ban when many users, alongside a large swath of Google employees, made clear their opposition to the ban. That type of internal influence seems less possible now, according to employees, and as a result, they feel less like anything the company produces is actually theirs, is something that they would want their name on, because the higher-ups are making decisions based on other misaligned variables these days. But beyond the perception of the company they work for, there's also a widely held belief within Google that these tools that they are building, these projects that they are working on, should not be utilized for violent purposes, even if only adjacently. Sure, they are only processing drone footage, but similar work, algorithms meant to help figure out which prisoners should be released and which should be kept in prison, for instance, have been prejudiced based on the assumptions and inclinations of those who developed the metrics that these prisons used to gauge recidivism potential and to determine how those metrics should be used. So the concern here is that any type of technology could be used for truly negative end goals, and the developer of that technology would not necessarily have any power over that or any say in how it was used. This type of work they argue, which could lead to people being killed, being bombed or executed, should be handled by people on a case-by-case basis. People who can make the types of judgments required to avoid stupid mistakes and who could potentially say no when the situation warrants it because there are real people's lives on the line, a whole lot of lives potentially. Further, although it's just footage assessment right now, who's to say what will be automated next. It seems unlikely, should this particular effort prove fruitful, that more and more of the military process would not be swapped out for software. And there are countless problems that emerge when you make violence at that scale simpler, more automated, and cheaper. Violent conflicts become more likely under those types of conditions, and we have less control over the damage that is wrought the more automated it becomes. If there are fewer people having to make tough decisions, it could all become so easy. The process of just sending out our killing machines to do our dirty work, never having to go through our own gut checks before killing these human beings halfway around the world. 
This might come to seem like an easy option. The nail to our hammer. The obvious solution for everything. Far more frequently. And who would be responsible if that were to happen? The thinking here is that, in part at least, those who built the tools that enabled this ease of use when it comes to violence would be responsible. And that is the concern of many of these engineers who have left the company. Now, at the moment, only about a dozen employees have resigned over Project Maven, but around 4,000 have signed an internally circulated petition making their stance against the project known and asking management to cancel the contract and to institute a policy against military work in the future. So that storyline laid out, let's talk for a moment about artificial intelligence. This is a topic that I've addressed several times from several different angles on the show previously, so I won't get into the super in-depth explanation here, but broadly, artificial intelligence, or AI, is a term most often used today to describe a collection of related and semi-related approaches to solving a collection of problems, to reaching a series of goals using software. These goals span a wide spectrum, from figuring out whether that's a tree or a human in that drone footage, to tackling philosophical questions about ethics and justice, to curing disease, figuring out how the universe was formed, and discovering previously undiscovered flavor combinations. The different approaches to accomplishing these goals tend to ebb and flow in popularity, often because someone somewhere has figured out a clever new way to make their software learn on its own, or because some new hardware has become available that allows for more power to be utilized efficiently by these computational processes. But these types of systems are called intelligence because they don't just endlessly repeat algorithms, which are basically complex flowcharts that software works through to figure out what to do, which is what most software does when it's not taking commands directly from users. Instead, AI systems can take new data inputs they receive and use that new data to adjust how they behave. They can edit their own behavior, their own algorithms. We humans do something similar when we learn something new. We might see or experience something and then adjust our habits accordingly. But our brains are still fairly opaque to modern science. And although we know a whole hell of a lot more than we knew even five years ago about the brain, we are still fairly certain that we have not figured out what leads to things like consciousness or the collection of triggers and perceptions that we collectively refer to as consciousness. And we're fairly certain that all the approaches we've tried thus far using software have not achieved thought in the same sense as we think, nor intelligence in the sense that living things can be intelligent. Now that said, these processes can be incredibly complex and powerful. AIs can beat humans at most games these days, even those which were once considered to be too complex, with too many possible options and outcomes to efficiently process, like Go and chess. AI systems are also used in autonomous cars, voice processing software like Siri and Alexa, and on social networks to determine what to show people based on what that network knows about them. 
AI software is being used to identify cancers by parsing hundreds of thousands of photos of people's skin. It can figure out optimal driving, walking, or cycling routes between two points anywhere on the planet, and it can help create more believable, skilled but flawed opponents and other non-player characters in video games. Each of these systems is a different type of AI. You can't take a chess-playing AI system and expect it to map a biking route for you or tell you what's happening in drone footage. The term encompasses many types of self-editing evolving techniques and systems, many of which we use every day without even realizing it, but most of which differ from all of the other approaches in some important fashion. Although these systems have become so integral to our day-to-day -day over the past five years or so, some people claim that using AI systems to serve up content online is manipulative and should be stopped. It's too effective, while others claim that it will eventually help us wade through the murky online ocean of nonsense to get to the good stuff, to filter out all the noise to find the signal. Some people claim that it is wrong to allow machines to make split-second life-or-death decisions when autonomously piloting a car or some other vehicle, while others point out that if software is not making these choices, humans are. And humans have inferior reflexes compared to machines, and just as many potential biases, if not more, as the software alternative. So there are mixed opinions on every aspect of this and good arguments on both sides, even when we're not talking about violence and military-related applications. No single part of this discussion about technology and artificial intelligence and autonomous machines is straightforward or one-sided. Let's set aside, for the purposes of this conversation, the possibility of sentience emerging within these systems, of some malevolent or careless, super-powerful entity emerging from the petri dish of Google's servers to convert the universe into paperclips or decimate the human species while trying to protect us, or killing us off by building killer Terminator-like robots. The latter of which, by the way, is probably the least likely. I mean, can you think of a more inefficient way to kill off the human race than building a bunch of human-shaped robots to hunt us down one by one? It doesn't make any sense. I have to believe an all-powerful sentient AI would be smarter than that. But let's set aside those interesting and valid and, in some cases, movie-worthy concerns along with concerns over AI, stock trading bots flash crashing the stock market more than they already have, and concerns about these automated intelligent systems replacing huge swaths of the global workforce, upending society and the economy and the way things have worked since the Industrial Revolution. These are all potentially quite valid concerns, but they are not super relevant to the conversation that I want to segue into here. What is relevant, though, is the nature of warfare, of violence, and how already horrible things might be amplified and worsened, made more horrible by introducing new efficiencies into those systems. At the moment, many of these tech-enabled efficiencies within the military come in the form of more precise targeting systems organizational technologies that allow troops to access relevant 
intelligence, even from the front lines. And the steady iteration of all kinds of weapons and weapon deployment systems, like jets and armored personnel carriers, that make these tools more powerful, durable, and versatile. Most automation within these systems either plays a role in those aforementioned targeting systems, using a rocket to knock a missile out of the air, for instance, is a hugely computationally rigorous task, or they're used in certain defensive weapons, like the SGRA-1, an autonomous gun turret that has been deployed along the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. That weapon, the SGRA-1, had a particularly contentious deployment, not because it's a deadly weapon that can cut a human being to ribbons in less than a second, but because it contains a human on-the-loop system, instead of a human in-the-loop system. The difference between these two systems is considered to be vitally important to experts within the military and ethics space. Human in-the-loop systems are more common today. This term applies to the drones that the United States flies over Afghanistan and Iraq, which can travel and track people autonomously by itself, but which requires a human in the loop to give it permission to fire its weaponry. A human on the loop system, in contrast, can engage with its weapons automatically. The software decides when to start shooting, and a human can then step in and tell it to stop but the decision to attack, or since these are primarily defensive weapons at the moment, as far as most of us know at least, the decision to attack in defense is made by the AI. And the benefit of this type of process, especially for defensive purposes, is that software has faster reflexes than humans and is less likely to succumb to boredom, confusion, or even things like bribery. So that's broadly where we stand at the moment when it comes to weaponry and artificial intelligence technologies. There's a general understanding in the military world that more automation and more AI systems, granting more fast twitch capabilities and other refinements, could be immensely beneficial to whomever rolls them out effectively first. But there's also a general consensus within and without most militaries that once we cross that line, especially the line between in-the-loop and on-the-loop human involvement, it'll be difficult or impossible to step back from that line. If humanity starts rolling out more automated, no-human-permission-required-to-kill military devices, things could get very bad very quickly in many different ways. The trouble with killer robots or lethal autonomous weapons, as they're more commonly called by folks in the fields who build and program them, is that they are not Terminator-style human-like metal skeletons that you can shoot or blow up, and they're not giant Voltron-style anime robots that can be easily tracked and dealt with. These robots are more likely to be like landmines, a weapons technology that were arguably the first autonomous lethal device used in modern warfare. No human needs to be nearby to trigger them, but that also means that they kill without remorse and without any possibility of negotiation. There's no Geneva Protocol that will protect you if you are attacked by a landmine. No prisoners are taken or could be taken. What's more, landmines often become scourges to the very people who use them. Their lands become unusable, their environments potentially deadly. 
A landmine can kill friend or foe and never know the difference. And a landmine can cause massive collateral damage and you wouldn't even know who to blame for it. The person who built it probably never had any idea of when it went off, where it was used, or even thought twice about what that little device they were turning a single screw on as it moved down the assembly line in a factory thousands of miles away was meant to do. And perhaps most horrifically, these devices can remain deadly to anyone and everyone, even decades after the conflict is over. There's no good, reliable way to decommission this type of killing machine. One major issue that even the hunter-killer semi-autonomous human-in-the-loop drones of today have is the inability to accurately distinguish combatant from non-combatant. And yes, this is partially because combatants in many parts of the world and many conflicts today no longer wear uniforms, and they do their best to blend in with civilian populations. But that doesn't change the fact that the international humanitarian law demands that militaries are able to distinguish this difference, and that damage to civilians is only inflicted if it's proportional to the military aim. Meaning you can do it sometimes if it's part of some larger effort meant to strike at the military. But going around shooting down civilians is a huge no-no, according to several international treaties and the generally understood spirit of such conflicts in the modern world. Further, these types of technologies make going to war, causing damage to a perceived enemy, far easier. Because you don't have to mobilize troops and take the politically inexpedient path of conventional warfare. Why not just litter the ground with mines instead? Or the updated version of the same? Why not just litter the skies with autonomous drones? What could possibly go wrong? This is of particular concern within democratic nations, as one of the main checks that keeps a country from becoming too militant is that the civilian population generally needs to be won over to make a war happen. They have to provide the money, but also the human lives to go win a victory. And that means that victory needs to seem like something important to the public, the people who are doing that sacrificing. Now, there are ways around this barrier, of course, including the dogmatic nationalism that seems to be one of the more common methods of rallying a population around what would otherwise be an unpopular and even nonsensical military action today. But another option is to simply automate warfare, hunting down and killing people who may be enemies with drones or other types of robots, and spending just dollars instead of both dollars and lives. No lives on our side, at least. This allows leaders to bypass traditional checks and balances that moderate this type of conflict, and it allows them to argue away what might be seen by some as war crimes, saying instead that they are mere accidents or glitches in the system. When there are fewer people in the loop who can clearly be blamed, when you separate responsibility from the act of killing, it's easier to just shrug when something bad happens. Because quite often, no one person is solely responsible or more responsible than any of the other dozens of people involved in the building, programming, and deploying of these weapons. 
What's really scary to some people in this space, though, is not what happens in the mid-term future, the next few dozen years, but instead what happens after that. Something we're getting small previews of today, but also something that hasn't really settled into the public consciousness quite yet. It's not something that we can generally easily imagine with any kind of specificity or emotional involvement. When we think about war and combat in general, we tend to think about guns and tanks. And if we think about future warfare, we often think about laser guns and spaceships with laser guns. And if we're getting really sci-fi, we maybe think about little clouds of combat drones that scout ahead and zap the bad guys with tiny laser guns. But the war of tomorrow could be something a lot less silver screen worthy. Instead of in-person combat, we could experience non-tangible attacks of increasing sophistication. Hacks that aim to take out our electrical grid, not by blowing it up, but by overloading it, or turning off its security system, or introducing a flaw that causes its structural integrity to slowly degrade without us realizing it. There could be a constant barrage of small-scale attacks on our banking system in our stock market, slowly eroding consumer and investor confidence, leading to a steady stream of recessions that feed into larger-scale economic depressions. Instead of fielding troops, and instead of even fielding human hackers, we may find ourselves struggling to defend our electronic border, or pseudo-border, with an array of software guardians all of them deploying countermeasures, making counterattacks, and each flickering between instances of computational combat with a million other oppositional little bots, little artificial intelligences, little autonomous software programs, massive clouds of them tapping into the world's processing resources, leveraging them for a nonstop stream of assaults against any electronic internet-accessible target or infrastructure that their enemies possess. We have an intellectual bias toward traditional war, traditional combat, sending a soldier into fight to defend something that they believe in with blood and sweat and muscle that feels a lot more legitimate in a way, a lot more manly, and even strangely wholesome in a way, a lot more honest, even desirable through certain lenses. But that style of combat, in most cases at least, likely won't make much sense for much longer. The investment required, the political hit that leaders take, the cost of lives and treasure, it's just a bad angle, and it's inefficient. And we can already see some countries moving away from that model. Russia and North Korea have probably made the most notable attacks of this type so far, but I suspect there's plenty of action in this department that's flowing outward from the U.S. and China, the U.K. and European countries, and many other governments as well around the world. They're just not being reported on quite so frequently. I'd be a little shocked if these governments weren't doing this kind of thing, frankly, because, again, it just makes a lot more sense on multiple levels, including the global saving face diplomatic level. You are far less likely to run afoul of international treaties when you are semi-anonymously hacking your enemy using automated software than if you're manually doing that same thing or if you're sending in soldiers with guns. Now, it's possible to look at this potential evolutionary path for military action and think, okay, well, I mean, that's pretty good, right? No more brutal, barbaric combat. 
No more civilian casualties. No more landmines and their autonomous drone and other weapon equivalent. You could also look at it, though, and think about all the damage that can be done by hacking increasingly interconnected systems and assessing the potential body count from wiping out food stores or water treatment plants, from blowing up power grids, all the hospitals that could be shut down for a good long time by that type of act. And you could also see these autonomous, potentially human, on-the-loop AIs, meaning they would be fully autonomous and could act without us telling them to, as a type of digital landmine, crippling parts of the global online infrastructure, just waiting to blow up, devastating who-knows-what infrastructure and individuals later, well past the end date of the official conflict. And that's assuming that we would still have official conflicts with actual end dates, With this sort of combat, there's no reason that conflict would ever need to stop. The push-pull back-and-forth attacks could be constant and perpetual, a non-stop thing. War would be less immediate and grisly, yes, but war could also become a never-ending reality, with invisible explosions detonating constantly, explosions that we only feel secondarily when our heat goes out in the middle of the winter or when our bank accounts are emptied by unidentified, unregulated autonomous attack software. Now, could things end up going in an entirely different direction from what I've just outlined? Could the predictions being made about humanity moving away from physical warfare into something more virtual be just incredibly wrong or maybe too early and instead we have a few generations worth of lethal autonomous weapon system powered nightmares before we finally as a species shrug off the whole killing strangers because of war thing that's possible and it may be that this will be the direction that a lot of things go that terrorism goes in instead of official military business we are already seeing weaponized trucks and the weaponization of other traditionally non-weapon items. It doesn't take a stretch of the imagination to think up weaponized autonomous vehicles, weaponized exploding drones, or even military robots dropped into civilian centers, going on killing rampages before they're finally stopped. It's a truly terrifying thought, something like what some groups are already dealing with when their towns are bombed by military drones. But in this case, you wouldn't even need a human being somewhere to push the button to launch the missile. You just get one of these things into a crowd of people, hack the software a little, and it would be a slaughter. These things, after all, would be built for a battlefield and would tear through a civilian center almost completely unopposed. In that type of scenario, and if things went in that direction in a larger way too, if modern battlefields just became robot-on-robot battles more or less, instead of human-on-human, as has typically been the case up until now, Civilian population centers would become like this nest of eggs that these autonomous weapons would be set up to defend or crush. I don't particularly like the idea of having the space between cities seething with exploding insect-sized assassin bots or swarms of roving missile-launching autonomous drones, but that tactic would be possible with the right technologies in place and manufacturing capabilities available. In other words, if enough engineers put their minds toward allowing these things to see better, perceive better, think better, and aim better, we could all be in a lot of trouble. Just like landmines, it would only require a relatively small investment by an interested party to make any patch of land, any place on the planet, partially unlivable and completely terrifying. 
Which brings us back to Project Maven. It's possible to look at the engineers who resigned rather than working on the target recognition software and to say to them, hey, come on, it's not like you walking away will stop any of this from happening. This ball is already rolling and you can either help make it work optimally and maybe even influence its direction in some way, or you can have zero power over the outcome. You can watch it happen from the outside rather than helping to determine the shape that this thing takes and take a little responsibility for it. On the other hand, you could make the same argument about not wanting to become a soldier and go fight in a war. By deciding not to carry that gun, you are giving up some control over how things shake out. But in the trade-off, you are also not pulling the trigger. You're not killing someone. So you're giving up some control over the situation in exchange for not directly, or not more directly, at least, since in some sense we are all party to violence, to conflict, because we elect the people who declare the wars, or who more commonly these days take unilateral military action against foes, using advanced tools to kill and maim, but pulling the trigger on a gun that fires a bullet that kills someone is more direct involvement in that killing than the many steps removed role those of us who simply fund the military of our countries play. And you could say the same of coding the visual systems for a killer robot compared to the many more steps removed role that they will play otherwise. It's the difference between pulling the trigger and living in a place where you pay taxes. I don't personally think that I would want to be involved, even adjacently, with the inventing of the modern landmine. But then landmines don't really have any other purpose, and artificial intelligence systems do. Gobs of purposes, in fact. So this moral gray area becomes even more gray because the technology in question is not exclusively used for killing people. And weapons in general, especially those built by national militaries, are more often used for defense than offense. There's plenty of invading and quote-unquote military interventions going on around the world, but the vast majority of these technologies will only ever be used for defending borders and other interests, which means, in theory at least, they will only be used for violence if doing so will prevent more violence. You could also argue, I think fairly convincingly, that if we are somewhat inevitably moving in this direction anyway, toward more automated smart weapons systems, isn't it a good idea to make sure that the good guys have that stuff? rather than the bad guys, to make sure that our side, the people who hopefully are not the bad guys, who are not trying to take over the world or eliminate entire ethnic groups, who adhere to at least most of the international laws, to make sure that we are the ones with the best weapons, the best autonomous robots, the best, hopefully, primarily, defenses. Wouldn't it be prudent, in other words, to make sure that as this wave of new technologies rushes over us, that we are prepared, that we can float above it, that we can even potentially guide it in some way, rather than leaving that to others, others who perhaps have ideologies and goals that we cannot in good conscience agree with, letting those people take the reins and steer this immensely powerful collection of technologies wherever they like, no matter how dark that direction might turn out to be.
Now, many aspects of those positions I just stated are debatable, and it is still not a pleasant thing to think about either way. There's a whole lot of all different shades of gray in this space, even though we typically discuss these types of issues in terms of black and white. There really is not a good answer here. Most positions, most hardline, well-defined positions that you could take have some kind of built-in hypocrisy. And that's been the case with this topic for a very long time. These are the same questions that researchers and scientists and manufacturers of weapons and other technologies have had to ask themselves for centuries. It is possible that we will staunch the tide of dangerous autonomous weapons before they become a problem. But do we really want to risk that? Do we want to bet everything on that potentiality? On the other hand, do we want to be the ones to develop these things further and risk becoming the catalysts for all the potential negative changes that might come after? Do we want to be the people who light that particular fuse? There are countless valid perspectives on this issue, and that number goes up even further when you start to talk about even more details about war and technology. There's a lot that I had to kind of gloss over here in order to stick to the main conversation. But one certainty is that if we don't understand the technologies underpinning these shifts and what they might mean, if we are not able to extrapolate forward into the future and understand the potential consequences of our actions to the best of our prognosticating capabilities, then we may be taking risks that we don't realize that we're taking. And we may end up making decisions that, with the benefit of full-spectrum retrospect, we would give anything to be able to take back. And that applies in both directions here. It's possible to regret not taking responsibility for these types of developments when you and few others have the potential to do so. But it's also possible to regret blindly following orders and developing things that you know to be wrong, not because you believe in what you're doing, but because you're just doing your job. In either case, taking the time to fully consider, to imagine consequences, to wonder about other paths and opportunities, seems like time very well spent. Instead of recommending a book today, I would like to recommend a website. And it's kind of a strange site. It's really just a subsection of Reddit, actually. So it's a message board on a website. But unlike some parts of Reddit, this place is incredibly civil and incredibly valuable as well. There's a lot of great information there. Not just fact-based information, but really informed perspectives on a bunch of different topics. And this particular Reddit board is called Neutral Politics. And importantly, it's not for people necessarily who are neutral or middle ground on anything political. But the idea is that people post topics, and then in the comments, different people will go through and explain different elements of that conversation or of that current event that's happening, and will explain the arguments on various sides as well. So it's a really interesting place to see informed opinions that differ from your own. That, to me, is actually the most valuable aspect of this particular site. So if you're curious about something, if you're curious to find out why other people disagree with you about something, and to hear about it in a format that's highly regulated, they are very careful to ensure that the people who post there have bibliographies to go with their arguments, this is a really good place to check out. 
So this Reddit subsection can be found at reddit.com slash r slash neutral politics. A really great resource if you're just looking for something random and interesting to read, or again, if you're looking for a counter-argument to something that you currently believe or are looking to round out your perspective on. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast can be found at letsnotethings.com. As I mentioned, I'll be going on tour very soon. You can find out more about that at becomingtour.com, and feel free to reach out and say hello on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name, pretty much everywhere. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.